Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field. Opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Author's Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Welcome to another episode of the Authors Podcast. Today, my guest is Dave Brickoff. Have you ever wondered or struggled to create messages that customers actually want to hear? Have you wondered why some messages connect with audiences and others don't? Are you talking about your clients or talking about yourself? Today's guest spent 15 years sailing in search of stories. He's the author of 12 books, including an adventure sailing memoir two books about writing, and three about storytelling. His company, Remarkable Stories, Inc., teaches the art of business transformation through storytelling. If you want to say it, share it, or sell it, bring him your story. He'll help you tell it. Today, he'll be talking with us about how stories work and how we can use strategic storytelling to grow our business. Please welcome award-winning speaker, author, designer, transatlantic sailor, tough love presentation coach, a pretty good jazz guitar player, Dave Bricker. (laughs) Hi, Lisa. How are you? It's great to be here today. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm quite excited about this, actually, because we always, well, I do anyway, love a good story. (laughs) So it just reminds me of, you know, just... Um, you know being literally uh, cozy and just around friends and family and just listening to a good tale so I was quite intrigued though because you've sailed thousands of solo miles and crossed the Atlantic on a wooden boat so let's start there so what inspired you to do that well I have to say it was stories that inspired me when I have finished my first year of college I came back to Miami for summer break And there was an art project going on on Biscayne Bay. You may have heard of the Christos Surrounded Islands Project. And he, uh, famous artist, surrounded a bunch of islands in Biscayne Bay with a 200-foot-wide border of pink fabric. And while I was working on this strange and wonderful project, I met these people who lived in the sailboat anchorage in Miami, in Coconut Grove, I don't know, half mile offshore of Miami City Hall. And none of them had any money, none of them had fancy boats, but they traveled the world and they'd been in and out of all sorts of wonderful trouble. They had 
incredible stories of places I'd never heard of. And I was a private prep school kid, and I thought, I, I want this. <laughs> I thought adventures were something you could only get in, in books and movies. And it turns out not to be the case. So by the time I graduated college, I had a small boat of my own, and I set off for the Bahamas with $30 in my pocket and a locker full of food and dreams. <laughs> <laughs> what was the Bahamas like? Oh, <laughs> I don't think we have time for that. But the Bahamas is beautiful because mm. the water is crystal clear. Even when it's deep, you can look down. And I've even had times in the Bahamas when there was no wind. There were no ripples on the water. And when you rode your dinghy, it looked as if you were flying about six or eight feet off the bottom. The water was indiscernible. The boats were hovering in the air. And the colors are rich and vibrant. And it's turquoise and beige and green and blue. It's, it's like living in this gigantic Van Gogh uh, painting. And it, it's a surreal experience. Mm. Oh, I'd love to go there. So you speak and write about storytelling. Um, so what's that all about? Why should leaders or business owners care about storytelling? Isn't that for kids? Uh, what a great question. <laughs> Storytelling is the most powerful form of communication that we have. And we may think of a story as something for children, the three bears, mm. uh, uh, some sort of a fable, Mother Goose. And these are great teaching tools. They have lessons. But I think a lot of the conflict we have in the world has to do with disagreement about how the story is supposed to go. I know that we've all had the experience of sitting down to watch a movie and five minutes in, we think, this is terrible. I know how this is going to end. The acting is horrible. It's not believable. But we sit down, we watch it all the way through to the end. <laughs> we're hooked by the story. And then finally, I think leaders are people who they take control of the narrative. If you go into the average large company, the sales staff is telling one story and the leadership is telling another and customer service is telling another. And usually the customers are telling another. And I think leadership has to do with harmonizing the narrative. So there are plenty of practical business applications for storytelling. Mm. And so when I think of stories for businesses, I, I, I think of the maybe like the founder's story or how the business came about or the reason for starting the business but so how do stories work in your world like how does that connect with with business well i think that business people very often talk directly about the business or about what's going on in the company and these surface level things are, it's, it's very informational but it's not going to connect in the same way as creating a narrative that is a metaphor for the listener's story. So for example, if you want to motivate people, you might begin by talking about how you decided to run a marathon or climb Mount Everest or sail across the ocean or whatever the case may be. But at some point you need to turn around and say, have you ever felt like that? Like you're just on that endless climb, like 
you're just seeing nothing but horizon for days and days and you're waiting for those trees to pop up so you can complete your journey. Whatever it is, everybody's got a story. And when you can make your story a metaphor for your listener's story, that's when the leadership starts to happen. That's when people think, oh, I didn't realize that person's talking about me. Mm, yeah. And I'd better tune in and pay attention. Yeah. And I also think though, with stories, the power of them is that for me anyway, I know I remember a story more than maybe even what someone said. <laughs> I couldn't tell you maybe what they said, but I remember the story that they, they told me that uh, that's just me. Maybe that's how memories work. So I think that's really good. Well, because that story resonated with you in some way, it was information that got connected to an experience that was meaningful to you. And yes. that's why you remembered it. Yes. Whereas if somebody goes, it's, it's the old story of sell the benefits, not the features. And if somebody lists the features, the house has so many BTUs of air conditioning and heating power. It has so many bedrooms and so many bathrooms. And well, that's all great, but those are features. What are the benefits? It's very close to public transportation. There's a great elementary school within walking distance and it's a mile and a half from downtown business district and all of a sudden you're thinking ah these are benefits this appeals this dovetails with the story of a certain type of home buyer so there's a a real estate very practical very straight ahead business example of how shifting the way we frame a story will attract attention and hopefully cause some commerce to happen Mm. So when it comes to stories, I, the one I'm specifically remembering is a lady in, um, I think, well, she was a motivational speaker. She was in a wheelchair and she talked about how she climbed this mountain and um, she fell. And that's how she became paralyzed from the waist down. And I was just with her the whole way, just on the story, with, you know, just imagining the story and everything. So but and it it really moved us because you know she was saying you know and despite the fact that she's got this disability now she can't walk she's still climbing mountains and you know afterwards she got a standing ovation it was just really quite powerful but what if you don't have this big amazing story like that <laughs> well you know what they say size doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> and where where that where that comes into play is Anybody who's raised a child has amazing stories. Anybody who's worked in a cubicle farm has incredible stories because the stuff that passes over and under those walls is amazing. You mm. could write a novel about it. Mm. Anybody who has had their heart broken, anybody who has had a big deal go south on them, we all have stories. And when we can use those stories to connect to other people, either because they have similar stories or because our story is a metaphor for their story, then we can help people on their journey and we can help people with their lives and businesses. Mm. Stories, the glue is the energy that makes it happen. Mm. Does the story have to be 100% true? Like, can you fabricate a little bit of it and embellish it and make it up and 
<laughs> How true does it have to be? <laughs> I, 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 and I can, I can hear the laughter. I can hear people get nervous when they ask that question. And I mean, on one level, nobody's, nobody's accusing J.K. Rowling of writing all of these books full of lies. We all know that Harry Potter is fiction and there's a place for fiction. But when I work with storytellers, I like to say that we are journeyists, not journalists. And what that means is I want to put the story in the service of my listener. And that means that if I omit a few details, if I change the chronology a little bit, because life doesn't always occur in nice, tight, neat, orderly paragraphs. If I invent a character who's plausible, even if they weren't really there, as long as that story serves the listener, then I think that's, that's constructive, productive fiction. We're not journalists. As long as the story is put in the service of the listener, no problem. I have so many true sailing stories. One of the favorite ones I tell audiences is plausible but made up. It has a good lesson in it, but I won't <laughs> tell you which one it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plausible but made up, I love it. You are listening to The Author's Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have The Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. So, listeners, if you're just uh, tuning in, I'm talking to Dave Bricker, who is a excellent storyteller and that's what his business uh, does it's called remarkable stories inc and they tell stories so what, what about public speaking then dave you know once you've crafted your story do you need to be able to tell it in an engaging way i think it depends on what your goal is i worked with writers and continue to but I worked with writers for for many many years as my principal focus and now I work with more with speakers. And what I find is that public speaking is three-dimensional writing. And speakers are charged not only with coming up with wonderful, eloquent prose, but with delivering that in a way that is really engaging. Mm -hmm. So as an example, you could write a line like, the hardest thing to live with is regret. And then when you write that out on the paper, you want to think about the pauses and you want to think about the emphasis. And the way it comes out on stage is the hardest thing to live with is regret. And that pause is what pulls the audience forward in their chair. Like, tell me, tell me, what is it already? What is the hardest thing to live with? <laughs> and then you come back and say, oh, maybe a teenager. And everybody laughs. It's the timing that makes, makes it comedic. It's the timing that makes it meaningful. It's the emphasis. And like I say, public speaking is three-dimensional writing. And, and you have to be able to write the great words and also deliver the great words in a way that doesn't make people fall asleep in their scrambled eggs. <laughs> no, it's, it's We've all true. been to those chamber breakfasts. No, it's <laughs> true. And and the thing is, I think, you know, with a, a good speaker, you remember them, you for me anyway, I do, and I, I want to speak to them afterwards. I want to hear them speak again. They're they've almost like got a magnetic personality, but you know, 
boring people, they're going to have a difficult time. And a lot of that, some of it has to do with stagecraft, with the emphasis and mm. their, their platform skills. And then part of it has to do with, I mean, how many speakers have you watched get up on stage and talk about themselves for an hour? And Seth Godin, the, the famous business writer and speaker, said it very well. He said, people don't want email. They want me mail. And people want the speaker <laughs> to talk. <laughs> Isn't it brilliant? Yeah, people want that speaker to talk about them. And when speakers get up there and say, here was what my ocean crossing was like, and here was what my mountain climb was like, whatever it is, here's how I took a company public. Yeah, it's interesting to a point, but narcissism is the only disease in the world where the sicker you are, the better you feel. And at some point, you got to, I mean, you have to get up on that platform and give value to the audience. Because if you don't, you're either up there doing your therapy and using the audience uh, as your therapist or whatever you're doing. That's not the reason to be up on a platform or on the screen these days. You've got to serve your audience and deliver value or you have no business being up there. Mm. Even if you're telling your own story, there's a paradox for you. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's, so, that's an interesting thought, actually. Um... So it's, it's, still, it's still your story, but you're making it relevant well, to, the, to the audience so that they... Think about memoir. I mean, I call memoir the extreme sport for writers because you're writing about yourself for two or three or 400 pages. But if you want to do it successfully, you have to write about yourself for 350 pages on behalf of your reader. Now, that's a task. That's a challenge. And very few writers are really up to it. It's one thing to tell your story. It's another thing to put your story to work for your reader. That's true. So you're an, an author of 12 books. So you're adept to your lots of experience at writing. What would you say um, sort of um, have you learned over the, over the years in terms of, um, of book writing and what you can, like sort of tips you can share for the listener? Well, let me divide that into in the answer to that question into two realms. Mm -hmm. One is the creative process of writing and the other is the business of publishing. For the creative process of writing, it's a journey. The first thing you write is not going to be great, but if you try to edit it as you write it, you're, you're just going to fall on your face. You have to honor that process. I call it holding the pen for God where you sit down at the keyboard or with your yellow pad and you just channel whatever is going to come. And that's a magical process. It's, I think, why a lot of people get addicted to writing. On the other hand, the lesson is that at some point you do have to impose some structure on it. I had a, a gentleman come to me and he said, I just finished my novel. It's 220,000 words. And I said, here's the problem. There's nobody who will bind that into one book that I know of. There's nobody who's going to pay the price for an unknown author to read a 220,000-word book. I think that if you want to bind it in three volumes and put it on your shelf and, and show it to your kids, that's great. But as a product, it's impossible. You need to work with an editor, and you need to be able to impose that structure on the writing from the beginning. How is this going to end? Where is it going to go? What is the story arc? And it's both sides of the brain working together. 
And then when you're done, I don't care how accomplished you are, get with a professional editor and they will find all of the things you can't see in your own writing that you'd pick out in five minutes when you're looking at someone else's writing. Mm. On the business side, I think too many authors conflate great content with great business prospects. And we need to remember that big publishers, and I'm not one of these anti-big publisher indie publishers. I think big publishers are amazing, but they are retailers. They release products, 90 to 120 books every quarter, most of the big ones. They put those out in bookstores. They take a huge risk on them, and most of them go to the pulp mill because most of them aren't successful. They combine the risks with a selection of perennial favorites. Dr. Seuss is always going to sell. If they can license the latest Disney princess, that's going to sell. The latest release of Moby Dick is going to sell, or Charles Dickens at Christmas time. They know how to put these books out that will always, always sell predictably. The rest of the stuff, it's like a mutual fund. Most of the stocks fail, but hopefully you get a Dan Brown or a J.K. Rowling or something that just goes off the charts and makes it all worthwhile. As independent authors, we either have to write to appeal to popular genres and then go through all of the rigmarole to get somebody to represent you to a big publishing house. A lot of great writing gets overlooked. Now, a lot of terrible writing gets overlooked too, but a lot of great writing gets overlooked by big publishers because it's not about whether it's great. It's about whether it's a good product. And there's plenty of esoteric stuff that most people don't want to read, but a few serious bibliophiles, language geeks are going to get into and just devour. It doesn't make sense for Penguin Random to to put that out in their bookstores. They're going to lose money on it, but it doesn't mean it's not a great book. Writers need to understand whether they are trying to create a commercially viable product or they're just trying to create a work of literary art. Both are valid and both are fine. Both are acceptable, but they are not the same thing. Don't think that by writing an excellent book, you're necessarily going to attract a big publisher. Mm. That's very true. It's very true. So you've written a few books specifically for writers. Um, so t- tell us about those. Um, I think one was called uh, The Book Anatomy. So that's if you're unsure whether to include a preface, a foreword or a prologue in your book. Or don't know that's what just... Instagram or a colon, co- 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 colon off is. So... A colophon. <laughs> colophon. Yeah, co- <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of a colon cleanse. Well, yeah, a colophon. <laughs> <laughs> and look, there are so many parts to a book. Mm. And for example, I'll get, I'll get a writer who will send me a manuscript and it has a foreword in it, but the foreword's written by them. And technically a foreword is written by someone other than the author. There's a preface, a prologue, an introduction. Uh, there's, there are all of these parts of the book and most people don't know what they are. I certainly didn't uh, when I looked them up and I thought, why not create a little book yeah. with, with a reference so that authors have that guide. You have your dictionary, your thesaurus, and with a little luck, for me, you've got the publisher's guide to book anatomy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the writer's guide to powerful prose is a short little book. And what I've found in my, in my editing work is that writers make 
the same style mistakes over and over. And these are the things that make them sound like millions of other writers. And it could be simple things like uh, using people that instead of people who. It can be, uh, I find, and I've done this with writers, they'll send me and I'll underline the two initial two or three initial words of each sentence and and we were they were we went it was they were i am and it's all of these simple uh, verbs of uh, pronouns followed by a a verb of being am are is something that exerts existence that's generic and each of those becomes an opportunity to substitute a verb that ranks a little spicier on the flavor scale from unflavored to too hot to put in your mouth. There are words that that carry more emotional weight. And when writers use the same sentence structure over and over, it was, they were, I am, it creates a hypnotic repetition in the writing. And it's a whole list of these little things. You can read the book and go, oh yeah, I never saw that before. And ideally you'll be a better writer by the time you finish the book. You are listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like, and share this channel. So, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Dave Bricker. He's the author of 12 books. And if you're improving your writing, um, one of the books of interest is The Publisher's Guide to Book Anatomy, and another is The Writer's Guide to Powerful Prose. So, David, in just to sort of wrap up, just um, because you do a lot of speaking and everything, and we've had this lockdown where people haven't really been allowed out, and um, who knows if we're going to have a second wave. But if people are um, sort of working from home, when the lockdown is released, what do you think the new normal will look like? I think that we're going to see a lot of people who their businesses are going to open up and they're going to say, boss, if it's all the same to you, I'm going to skip those two hours a day on the expressway that I never got paid for. I'm going to (laughs) incur less risk to life and limb and I've been productive at home and I'm going to stay here. You're also going to see business owners who've had their real estate shuttered for months, eight months, however long it takes. And they're going to start thinking, I didn't know that we could do this, but we're productive with everyone working at home. I'm going to get out of this lease and sell all these air on chairs. And we're going to have that kind of thing happening. And then when it comes to the meetings industry, I think hybrid meetings are here to stay. And we'll have the online component. And when we have a a physical convention or conference, instead of 2,000 people attending, it might be 200 And this is going to open up opportunities for the small hotels. They'll be installing conferencing cameras and things like that and and stages with green screens and better production equipment. And the big convention centers are going to have to gear up to host many more small conventions at once. People are going to be attending from online. Mm. Let's see what happens. There are a lot of variables uh, in this equation, as, especially um, I'm here in the U.S. as, as uh, many of my countrymen attempt to drown themselves in a very deep pool of wishful thinking. I'm, I'm very concerned about how quickly we're opening things up and when we really will be able to open things up and what that will mean. Mm, yes, 
interesting times but um yeah it's um who knows but i, I agree with you though i, I do I, i've known um, a few people already who have given up the office and they're like nah we don't need it it's just gonna work remotely and it, it works for us and they're, they're saving substantial sums by doing that and i've been doing it for years i i've mm. a little cottage in my in my home behind my home and it's all set up and i've got a a green screen and a 4k camera and i'm constantly working on my on my presentation equipment i see this in the speaking industry there are a lot of people who have been doing it for 20 30 40 years who are really struggling with the technology and i'm 55 i'm not a young person but i'm comfortable with the technology and I love learning new things. So to me, this is an opportunity to learn new skills, get ahead of the game, and find ways to deliver that quote-unquote big stage experience <laughs> a little cottage. Oh, there you go. So, so your books are available on Amazon. How can people get hold of you? And if they want to work with you, how would they do that? Well, my website is storysailing.com, S-A-I-L-I-N-G, storysailing.com is my main website. Mm -hmm. And I have a blog there that I encourage people to sign up. And I talk about storytelling. I've sent out a post every two weeks. And I talk about storytelling in, in very broad terms. So sometimes it's narrative strategies, sometimes it's business. It's been a lot of platform skills and online platform skills these days. So all different aspects of storytelling and, and around the holidays and special occasions, I'll get a little crazy and do something different just for fun because I've got a mailing list, which I guess they can always subscribe, but they're something of a captive audience. So we have some fun. And the other website is publicspeakersmasterclass.com. And every Sunday at 1.30 Eastern time, I'm doing online masterclasses for speakers of all levels. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So once again, the website to get hold of Dave Bricot is storysailing.com. Storysailing.com and it's sailing, S-I-A-L-I-N-G, as if you're in a boat, storysailing.com. And Dave Correct. Dave can be found on Twitter at Dave Bricker, B-R-I-C-K-E-R, -E and also on Facebook, Dave Bricker Speaker, and also on, on LinkedIn, David Bricker. Okay, David, so that concludes the podcast. Thank you very much for being a guest and sharing with us how stories help and um, tips we can use. And um, remember to sign up to Dave's website, his blog posts storysailing.com thanks very much dave thank you lisa it's been an honor to be here with you and listeners that concludes another episode of the authors podcast thank you very much for tuning in i hope to see you on the next time of the authors podcast You have been listening to the author's podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.com.
www.innercircle.co.uk. And if you want to join our author's community, join the Inner Circle at www.writerbook.net. You have just been listening to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.